Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx, and my co-host today is Tom Clockerty who is Head of Tax at the Centre for Policy Studies, which is our parent organisation. Hello, Tom. Hi. Uh, after a brief summer hiatus, it's a pleasure to be back and to welcome Duncan Weldon to the podcast. Duncan is one of the UK's leading economics commentators. He's worked at the Bank of England, the TUC, as the economic correspondent for BBC Newsnight, and latterly for The Economist, where he writes about the British economy. And on top of the day job, he's also written the book I hold in my hand, which is called 200 Years of Muddling Through... The Surprising Story of Britain's Economy from Boom to Bust and Back Again. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Um, just for our audience, how would you sum up the kind of central thesis of your book? You've, got a, you've tried to resume 200 years of British economic history. It's not kind of been an easy task to whittle everything down. No, no. Thank you for having me on. And it, I mean, I think it's worth emphasising it's uh... It's quite a quick canter through 200 so years of economic history. You know, I like to think of it as sort of a, you know, a book for economists who want to learn some history, a book for historians and people interested in politics who want to learn a bit of economics. It's certainly not a book for diehard economic historians. But I'd say the central theme of the book, in as much as it has one, is this idea that path dependency matters. Path dependency is the idea that where you are is important, but how you got there matters too. You know, the journey you took closes some paths to you, it opens others. You know, I opened the book with that not particularly funny but very old joke of the man asking the, of a tourist asking a man for directions and the tourist replying, well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here. It's not very funny, but it's something that's often forgotten in politics and economics. You don't start with a blank slate. Mm-hmm. I told that joke to my wife, and she thought it was hilarious. So, actually, maybe <laughs> you she, are literally the first you, person to say that. You undersell, uh, <laughs> undersell the the gag. And one of the things I noticed reading the book is, I found myself quite often going, "Oh, I didn't realise that. I didn't realise Chamberlain wasn't really a pacifist, and he'd rearm before the war. I, I didn't realise that Callaghan didn't really go cap in hand to the IMF." And there's lots of kind of cliches that that you you bust um, during this. I mean, when you were doing the research, was there, was there anything, a key, in, any insights or even just anecdotes where you thought to yourself, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't realise that? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if I, if I think back to the original sort of, you know, chapter outline that I did that authors do when they, you know, when they sell the book, here's, here's what I'm going to write. There was a bit more 20th century and a bit less 19th century. Then as I came to research the book and write the book, 
I became more and more interested in the 19th century. And thankfully, I had a quite indulgent editor and publisher who was happy for there to be more 19th century. And the big change for me was, you know, I, you think back to the Luddites. Of course, you know, I, I've worked as an economist. Before working at The Economist, I've worked as an economist um, for most of my career. And, you know, you, as a trained economist, you, you look at the Luddites and your, your instant reaction is Luddites... Well, that's a bit silly, isn't it? But the more you read about the sort of circumstances of the early 19th century, the more you think, yeah, I can understand where the Luddites were coming from. That was, that was one of the big surprises for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Duncan, I'm, I really enjoyed the book, by the mm-hmm. way. I think it's, it's a great read. Um, and as you say, it's a really good introduction to Britain's economic mm-hmm. history and also to some economic concepts mm-hmm. for non, non-economists reading. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will enjoy this book. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the 19th century because I think one of the things you you do really well right at the outset um, is make it clear just how extraordinary economic growth, rising prosperity really is. You know, we had thousands of years of human misery and then somehow, suddenly, and not so very long ago, things started to change and change in particular here in Britain. Um, Why did it happen and why did it happen here? Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing. You know, the, the story of global economic history is actually remarkably simple. There's the, time before the glo- there's the time before the Industrial Revolution and there's the time after. And in the world before the Industrial Revolution, sort of the dominant thing in the economy is really continuity. You know, people live the same lives as their parents, as their grandparents, as their great-great-grandparents. They have similar housing, similar clothes, similar income, similar diets. And then something changes. People start to get richer And at the same time, we see something that was previously impossible, population rising and income per head rising at the same time. And the world just transforms. What becomes new is change becomes dominant rather than continuity. As you say, you know, it happens. It happens first in Britain. Now, there are a huge amount of reasons why it happens first in Britain. And, you know, economic historians have been arguing about this pretty much ever since. There's two big schools of thought. I mean, I think. In the broad sweep, what matters for the purpose of the book, what matters for the purpose of British history, is that it happens in Britain, um, rather than why it happens. But, you know, very quickly, the two broad schools are... um, There's one view, which is that this is really about the scientific revolution, about the Enlightenment, about this sort of what's called the Republic of Letters, this this birth of um, sort of scientific inquiry and invention across Europe. There's another view, which is a bit more materialistic, a bit more straightforwardly economic, which is Britain in the sort of late, eight, uh, late 18th century, late 1700s, was a strange place. It was a strange place in that wages were quite high, borrowing was quite cheap, coal was quite cheap. So if you were an entrepreneur, if you could find a way to use more machines and less wages, then you would do that. And that kicked off a process of um, using more capital rather than labour, of productivity rising. Mm-hmm. And just on a kind of general point, I mean, you're quite sort of neutral in your approach in the way you approach these issues. I mean, as an economist, do you think it's helpful to view other economists in terms of being a left-wing economist or a right-wing economist? Or are we, are we applying a kind of political framework to what is more of an academic discipline by doing that? Yeah, I mean, in the end, economics is a social science. It's not science. And I think there's a difference between a social science and a science. There is, there is rarely a right answer on an economic question. I think you know, one theme that really comes out of the book is that these big macroeconomic calls usually involve a trade-off. 
and you know where you want to come down on that trade-off is sort of guided by your wider views about society and politics. You know, is it better to have low unemployment or low inflation? I think you can actually make the case either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, that's that, that that's the wonder of politics. But I think you know, economics suffers when it tries to elevate itself to the level of physics and say there is only one right answer, and this is that right answer. These things are contested, confusing, and quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of economists, there's one who looms large over the, the book, certainly the 20th century part of it, um, and that's John Maynard Keynes. Now, I suppose CapEx listeners will be pleased to hear that you award Milton Friedman the silver medal, <laughs> the second most uh, influential economist of the 20th century, but clearly Keynes is the runaway gold medal winner there. Um, and, and as I say, he pops up um, chapter after chapter, so he's important, but how well understood do you think Keynes is today, or does really everyone take his name in vain from the left and from the right? I mean, I think it's interesting. So, you know, much of the book, particularly the bits on the 20th century, is about macroeconomics. Um, and Keynes basically invents macroeconomics as we understand it. You know, the idea of thinking about GDP, of thinking about the deployment of um, national resources is really a product of Keynesian economics. And yeah, I give Milton Friedman the, the silver medal. But I mean, what's interesting is the extent to which Friedman even though his policy prescriptions sound quite different, is fundamentally working in a Keynesian framework. You know, he's thinking about the same model of how do we add up gross domestic product, you know, consumption, investment, um, exports minus um, imports and all of that. I think Keynes is not tremendously understood today. He's often caricatured into a, you know, a, a, a position as a very left-wing figure, always in favour of a bigger state. I mean, that's not necessarily the historical Keynes. You know, Keynes himself was a liberal. I mean, he wrote, you know, the, the essay, Am I a Liberal? He concluded he definitely was. Um, you know, he, my, my favourite Keynes quote from the um, sort of 20s and 30s is when he's lamenting the decline of the Liberal Party and says, you know, what is the Liberal Party now? Its function seems to be only to provide Labour governments with ideas and Conservative governments with ministers. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Hayek also wrote an essay called Why I'm Not a Conservative, which yeah. essentially yeah. reached the same conclusion. Yeah. Because I'm, and they're always viewed as kind of opponents, although they were actually, um, I, I don't know about friends, but great yeah. admirers and, and correspondents yeah. um, of each other. I mean, just coming back to some of the history stuff, you, you mentioned some of the Victorian stuff. One of the things that really struck me in your analysis is just, one is how dominant Britain was at the start of the 20th century. You mentioned it's a combination of, if we were to compare it to now, it would be a combination of China, America and Saudi Arabia. We dominate manufacturing exports, energy and global finance to an enormous degree. Um, But what really struck me is how much of a cataclysm the First World War is. I mean, do you think this is something that we perhaps... We focus an awful lot as a country and in education on the Second World War, Mm -hmm. but really the First World War is arguably... If, if not as important, then more important from an economic point of view. I think it's a really decisive break in British history. So, you know, Britain in 1913 is, you know, it's, it's the biggest exporter of energy in the world. It's the centre of global finance. It's got a share of the global manufactured goods trade, which is bigger than China's is today. It's just utterly dominate, yeah. do- dominant. And, you know, the, and the global economy of 1913 is surprisingly globalised. There was this great age of Victorian, Edwardian globalisation. You know, on many measures, the world was more globalised in 1913 than it was in the early 1980s. And Britain sits at the centre of that. And the First World War is this decisive break in so many ways. I mean, you know, Britain emerges from that war 
politically victorious, militarily victorious. The empire's bigger than it's ever been. It's a, you know, one of the big free powers at the Paris peace conferences. But the economic costs are huge. Britain's transformed from this global creditor to a global debtor. Debt to GDP jumps from you know, 30, 40% to 140%. Industries are twisted out of shape to be put into the war effort. And the state, in terms of its share of the economy, gets bigger than it ever has done before. And, you know, I think, I mean, you know, you look at the 1920s in Britain, and I think that decade is best understood as this difficult adjustment to a post-war world in which an, with an elite who haven't realised, you know, how cataclysmic that war has been for Britain. I think it's something that's striking. Again, coming back, we, I was talking earlier about... Um, the way you kind of bust certain myths. One of them is the idea that the, that the 20s was roaring and the 30s was hungry. But I think in your analysis, it's... it's and Tom will come on to this as well in terms of the parallels with modern society. But it's kind of the wrong way around, isn't it? For a lot of people, the 30s weren't desperate. Oh, no, completely. I mean, you know, nothing annoys me more than politicians lazily talking about a new roaring 20s. I mean, fine. fine. If you're American, fine. You know, you're, you're, you're flapper girls and your jazz age and your parties and all of that. In Britain... We probably did have a few flapper girls and there probably was a bit of jazz, but the dominant things are squeezed real wages, high unemployment, um, the general strike, the return to the gold standard. This was a horribly economically turbulent decade. But you're right, the 30s, again, we've basically imported this sort of American historical experience into our popular debate. And we talk about the hungry 30s. Now, the early to mid-1930s in Britain were a very, very tough time for the economy. But by the late 30s, you've got an economy which is, is growing quite well. You've got booming home ownership. You've got booming car ownership. You've got some regional pockets of extreme deprivation. But, you know, there is a reason the national government keeps being re-elected. I mean, you know, people talk about the Jarrow March. Mm. You know, these, um, you know, Jarrow, an area in the northeast near Newcastle, really hit by the decline of shipbuilding, very, very high unemployment. But the reason there was a Jarrow March was because the people of Jarrow wanted to demonstrate to the people of Bedford, to the people of Luton, to the people of Peterborough, that they were suffering whilst these new towns were, were booming. I'm going to pick up on the mm. 1930s, but actually, if we can, I just want to jump back into the mm. First World War for a minute, because, you know, 200 years of muddling through, it's the mm. name of the book, and it, it, it struck me while you were talking there, um, quite how much we even muddled our way into and through the First World War. Something I didn't realise, my own historical ignorance shining through here, was, you know, when Britain went into the First World War, um, they didn't expect quite the level of engagement that, that transpired. Um, you know, they thought they could blockade their mm -hmm. continental enemies. They thought basically the British economy could carry on yeah. as before, and they would win the war through being wealthier and having a better navy. Yeah. Um, there was no concept, I think, when war broke out, that it would have such an extraordinary transformative effect. Of course, if they knew, I suppose they never would have done it. But Yeah, but that's interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the standard sort of cliche is it's all going to be over by Christmas when the war breaks out in August. And that's not that unreasonable. I mean, if you look at the big European wars of the 19th century, Franco-Prussian War, the 1866 mm. war between Austria and um, Prussia, these are all wars that end relatively quickly. It's, it's not that unreasonable to assume the war would end quickly. But yes, the conception of the war Britain was going to fight was very different to the war Britain fought. Britain fought, look, our role is going to be we will use the navy to blockade Germany, we will keep running our economy, keep running our you know, lucrative export markets, and we'll use that money to fund our allies, the French. There's not going to be a big British commitment of manpower, but it changes very quickly. And you know, the decisive choice Britain has to make 
quite early on in the war is, okay, we are actually getting drawn into a continental European war in which we're going to have to have a much larger army than we thought we were going to. And that raises all sorts of questions for the economy because then suddenly you're pulling away people from the export industries, putting them in uniform and putting them in trenches in Flanders. And you know, the conception of the war changes. So I said I come on to the 30s. You know, the book features um, so many episodes of, you know, going back over the last couple of hundred years. You read them today and you think, gosh, that sounds familiar. Um, and then there's a couple that, that really stood out to me and that there are many more scattered through the book. Um, one is the 1930s, uh, Baldwin's conservatism um, and the kind of voters he was going for and sort of the tone um, of, of, of his ministry. And, it, you know, there do seem to be uh, echoes of Boris Johnson or, or, or perhaps vice versa. Uh, and I think you wrote a piece for The Economist about the sort of Barrett Holmes mm. Tories in the, the new housing yeah. estates. Yeah. Um, are these, is this a replica of the, the people living in Metroland in the 1930s and so on? No, I think it is. And I think, you know, this, this is the interesting thing about the Conservative Party as an institution. You know, it, 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 it's, it's an economic history of Britain, but it takes political economy seriously on the grounds that you can't look at economic change in the long term without considering politics, and it makes very little sense to look at politics without considering what's happening in the economy. And I think, you know, one of the, if, you, if you were to try and draw sort of grand themes from 200 years of British economic history, one you'd have to draw is that the Conservative Party is an amazingly adaptive force in British politics. You know, it's completely, you know, if you go back to the early 19th century, this is the party of the landed interest. I mean, it's literally the party of the aristocracy, their hangers-on, and agriculture. And then as Britain industrialises, it very quickly reinvents itself as the party of the sort of prosperous middle class and capital. And then as we get into mass democracy in the 20s and the 30s and, you know, the era of Baldwin, it's the party of the successful working class, the homeowner, people that want to get on in life. It's just a, a, a phenomenal institution in terms of reinventing itself again and again and again. On the other side of the, that coin, I mean, we look at Labour and the union movement, and I think particularly when Corbyn was leader, his followers liked to kind of assert that they were carrying the true flame of the party. But, I mean, what comes across from, from your book um, and the bits about the union movement is kind of how bourgeois they were a lot of the time, and also how they weren't, how Gladstonian some of the Labour figures were, very committed to balanced budgets and, and yeah. you know, thrift and things like this. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the old quote, isn't it, about the, um, the Labour Party owning more, owing more to Methodism than Marxism, but that, that's true. You know, Labour wasn't invented as an explicitly Marxist or socialist party. Labour was invented as a sort of interest group for the trade union movement, and the trade union movement was distinctly sort of craft unionism, more like guilds about, you know, certain skills rather than just representing all workers. It was growing in the late 19th century into a more mass movement, but it was still... I mean, this, this, is, this is the weird thing about the British trade union movement, that it is... And they don't like it when you say this. I used to work with them. They don't like it when you point this out. But they are fundamentally liberal with a small L in their conception, in that the core tenant of British trade unionism is free collective bargaining. The idea that workers in a workplace or a firm negotiate with their employers and come up with, you know, terms, conditions, wages. It's a very different model to what you see on the continent in Europe, where it's all about, you know, big sectoral deals between, you know, IG Metal in Germany and the entire German steel industry. They support free collective bargaining. And what really pushes a lot of trade unions into backing the Labour Party is the idea that, you know, what they're, what they're really asking for is for the state to be neutral in this. 
they don't want the state interfering in this free collective bargaining between unions and firms. It's a very, like I say, small-l liberal tradition of British trade unionism. I mean, one thing... I mean, I find fascinating is if you look at sort of the 1940s Attlee government. You know, this is a government that's nationalising things, it's committed to planning, but ultimately it abandons planning because it abandons planning to the extent that it doesn't want to go down the whole sort of Soviet route of, you know, labour allocations and production targets. One reason for that is the trade union movement won't wear it because at the moment you've got labour allocation you're destroying free collective bargaining. And that, that, that is just the core of British trade unionism. And I did find myself thinking as I read the book, and, and I say this as someone who works for a think tank founded by Margaret Thatcher, mm. there were times when I thought, you know, did these trade unions with their commitment to free collective bargaining, did they save us from real socialism? <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. I, I would definitely, definitely not make any friends at the TUC by <laughs> commenting on that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, maybe this is a little bit of a tough mm. question, but... It occurred to me, and maybe this is because I've spent a while working in monetary economics, but there are things that dominate whole sections of this mm. book, things that the Treasury and governments are obsessed with, which looking back with modern eyes, you think, what on earth were they, were they worrying <laughs> about? So, um, you know, the gold standard pre-war parity, yeah. um, and then, you know, from Bretton Woods on, a variety of different currency pegs, you know, including yeah. ERM and everything. Um, just as when we ditched the gold standard things got better and the sky didn't mm. fall. But I do think there's something to be said for the classical gold mm. standard, but we won't get into that. Mm. And later on, you know, going through all of these different contortions um, to try and keep the pound at a certain level, and then we just thought, you know what, we'll let it float freely. Or rather, we didn't think that. Mm. It happened by accident and everything turned out better. So are there things, do you think, today, um, sort of, uh, you know, aspects of just economic common sense that everyone takes for granted that if someone like you writes this book in 50 years, readers will say, what on earth were they thinking? Yeah, it's a really good question. Now, obviously, you know, as I've learned, it's much harder to talk about the future than the past. That's why I wrote a book about the past, much more straightforward. But um, I do wonder, um, when we think about things like government debt to GDP, I mean, that, that seems to me the closest analogy to the discussion about the old historical gold standard. That, you know, for a long time, we thought that we should, you know, under Gordon Brown, we thought um, debt to GDP should be kept around 40%. And then it got up to 80 after the financial crisis. And for a while, George Osborne talked about bringing it back down to 40. And then Philip Hammond and um, said, actually, we'll keep it around 80. And now it's jumped up to 100. And Rishi Sunak seems content to keep it around 100. Now, I don't want to go all sort of modern monetary theory here because I have many, many problems with modern monetary theory. But you do wonder if sort of this often sort of focus on nice round numbers for government debt to GDP and the importance of keeping it there or reducing it to a certain level will just look as strange as pegging sterling to the dollar at $4.86 in the 1920s did, you know, 100 years ago. Of course, that was, you mentioned it um, towards the end, that one of those round numbers was, I think it was 90%. Was, yeah. uh, when you hit this number, your economy starts to contract, and it was actually, it was a mistake in a spreadsheet. It, was, it well, turned out to be a spreadsheet now. Right. <laughs> no. So we, we end up sort of hanging our impressions of things off and off things, which actually turn out to be completely correct, incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, another theme is... The sort of miss we mentioned it a bit earlier is that we misappraise not just decades but also sort of politicians and their legacy. I mentioned Chamberlain mm. and Callahan, um, but Major and Thatcher. You say that we've kind of got them the wrong way round in terms of micro and macro policy. I, mean, I think it, I, I think this is the interesting thing. 
So if you look at sort of the macroeconomic record, and forget about the supply side for a moment, very important, but just look at the macroeconomic record of the Thatcher government. You open with a really deep recession. I mean, I would argue that macroeconomic policy, um, interest rates and public spending were far too tight. You get the highest unemployment Britain has seen since the 1930s. And then, you know, things get a bit better, and then you get this huge relaxation in policy. You get the the Lawson boom, you get booming house prices, the economy overheats, and then you get another bust in the early 90s. And macroeconomic sort of business cycle management side of the Thatcher years, and immediately after is, um, you know, bust, boom, bust. It doesn't look great. Whereas John Major, you get Black Wednesday, which obviously hammers the reputation for economic competence of the Conservatives. But after Black Wednesday, they sort of stumble to a macroeconomic framework which seems to work. And then you get you know, this long boom, which starts under John Major in the early 90s and lasts all the way until 2008. And I think actually, you know, taken in the round, sort of the, in terms of business cycle management, I think the Major government's record looks an awful lot better than the Thatcher government's. Of course, they got no praise for it. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> and one of the things you say is Black Wednesday actually ended up kind of being good for the economy. No, I think, I think, it's, I think it's like leaving gold in... Um, 31, I think, you know, generally, when Britain has tried to peg its exchange rate, it's often ended up pegging it at inappropriate values. It then gets bound up with sort of, you know, political machismo that you can't, you can't back out of this fixed rate. And then when Britain eventually does, you know, for a moment, you've got days of panic. But then afterwards, you know, actually have lower interest rates. Now that's quite nice. <laughs> I mean, are there people that we will similarly reappraise? Um, you know, Will Brown fare better in history? Will Theresa May? Perhaps not, but <laughs> if, if, we're, if we're reassessing the major years, are, are, are contem- more contemporary politicians also going to get that kind of reappraisal? I mean, almost certainly. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, 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 I'm aware I'm at a, I'm aware I'm sitting in the Centre for Policy Studies, but I think in the, in the long historical view, I think Brown's years as an economic manager will look, will look better. I think people will say that, okay, you know, there, there was a global financial shock. Britain was hit by it, but Bram played a large role in showing countries the way out of it in terms of recapitalizing institutions, in terms of cobbling together the G20. You know, I think in the long run, you know, whatever happens, if he was to resign tomorrow, Boris Johnson is going to be an economically consequential prime minister. You know, if nothing else, you know, being the prime minister when Brexit actually happened is a really big deal. Um, so, you know, I, I, yeah. Do you think we tend to sort of? We, I think history just tends to look more kindly on prime ministers who do well in elections, regardless of whether their, <laughs> their actual policies were any good. So, I mean, it would be sacrilege for me to say this in this building, but Thatcher definitely gets a better write-up than she might otherwise have done because she she absolutely smashed Labour yeah. three times in a row. I mean, I think um, well, I think one, one one thing I do say in the book, which I think is which I think is interesting, I think important in this sort of context is, I think we sort of misunderstand how politicians interact with and affect the economy and that we tend to politicians i find tend to overestimate what they can achieve in the short term and underestimate the effect they can have in the long run you know in any one budget or even two budgets or three budgets there's only so much you can do but by being in office for five or six years by nudging things in a certain way you can put britain on a track which lasts for decades and i think you know uh, yeah, you, we call the book you call the book muddling through, and I think most leaders do. But if you look at Thatcher, if you look at Attlee, if you look at Lloyd George, if you look at Peel, these are prime ministers that have really shunted the economy in a way which has outlasted their term in office. But most, most don't, I'm afraid. 
There's another another kind of facet of the, the, the history, particularly from, let's say, pre-First World War to now, is it's the story of us going from a country that was largely in charge of its own economic fate to slightly being, well, not even slightly, to being buffeted by forces yeah. um, beyond our control. No, completely. I mean, to an extent, okay. Britain industrialises first. And so Britain becomes the richest country in the world because it's the first to have this sort of takeoff in productivity growth, first industrial economy. Um, you know, we spoke before about, you know, the place of Britain in the world economy in 1913. Now, unless you think there is something uniquely special about the British people, that no one else could copy these production techniques, whatever, then that was always going to reverse. So, you know, in the very, very long run, the last 100 years of British economic history was always going to be a period of relative decline. But it's funny how we talk about it. So we talk about the, the post-war decline in the 50s and the 60s. Now, why I say it's funny is because if you look at the growth rates of the British economy in the 50s and 60s, they were faster than the 80s and 90s. They were faster than the 30s and 40s, 20th century. The fastest growth Britain gets is in the 1950s and 1960s. But that's not how people judge it. What they judge it by is looking at the French, looking at the Italians, looking at the Germans, who were growing faster. You know, I think some of that British decline was inevitable. But it's, something has gone wrong by the, by the late 1960s, when France, Italy, Germany haven't just caught up. They've overtaken us. And it's when they overtake you that you think, OK, something has gone wrong with the model here. It, it's interesting that I, I guess we've been worried about Germany overtaking us in manufacturing since about 1875 or oh, something. Oh, yeah, a, a um, very recurrent theme. We, we've thought that our technical education <laughs> yeah. lagged the continents for about as long. Yeah. Um, I mean, pretty, pretty extraordinary. And, and I wonder, do, do we get an easier ride for the kind of growth rates which have been fairly pitiful over the last decade um, because continental Europe has been in a bit of a mess? Do you think that we're, we're comparing ourselves in the same way that we have in the past? No, I, I think definitely. You know, I think if, if you know, the growth rates for the last 10 years have not been great by any stretch. You know, productivity growth has been appalling. Real wage growth has been tepid. It you know, took until 2020 to return to 2008 levels. But you can sort of get away with that when the euro crisis is happening, when French growth has been soggy, when German growth has been quite soggy. You know, that, that, that we always compare ourselves to our neighbours. So, yes, I think, you know, it's a... Yeah. And there's a, there's a proverb, um, I can't remember which um, Balkan country it's from, but I was once told, which is, at least my neighbour's cow has also died. <laughs> that sort of sums up the last 10 years of Britain and its economy. So it's basically the opposite of the grass is always greener. Yes. Um, just on the point on productivity, this is a slightly niche question, mm. but I just wonder what you think about some of the productivity puzzle being in, in the fact that we consume so much stuff now that is essentially free you know i think just to use a slightly silly example something like netflix or something like a lot of people don't really go to the cinema anymore we get all this stuff for so much less i mean how much do you think that's kind of muddling is that on the edges of things no and i I agree i mean you know yeah we get loads of stuff now um for free and obviously what gdp you know productivity measures are based ultimately on gdp gdp is a measure of market transactions so you get you know the old paul samuelson joke that you know if in, in a different time when this was less politically incorrect, Paul Samuelson said, you know, if a man marries his maid, he reduces GDP because suddenly he's no longer paying her to cook his lunch and um, clean his clothes, like I say, a less politically correct time. But um, nowadays, you're right, you know, I, I, we, we pay for Spotify, we pay for Netflix, we get many more services as a result. But, um, you know, we're not, we're not paying for it as a market transaction, so it doesn't show up in GDP. You can make the argument that... 
you know, what's happened in economics terms is we're getting a huge consumer surplus and that we're getting a huge amount of goods that we're not paying for. Now, we don't measure that as um, productivity. And I, I find it really quite interesting in terms of how should we think about that? Should we say that the inflation rate is wrong? Should we say that measured productivity is wrong? I mean, ultimately, you know, it kind of matters for the public finances. I mean, you know, it, it would be a very brave chancellor who said, look, I understand your wages aren't going up, but now you've got Spotify and Netflix. So I think <laughs> your standard of living is higher, and actually yeah. you can pay a higher proportion of your you've income in tax. so good to <laughs> point a phrase. It's also, also a lot of these companies are sort of built on the back of endless kind of capital flooding in because there's yeah. nothing else safe there. So I, I do wonder about some of them, whether they're, how sustainable they are. Yeah, um, yeah. How, how sustainable that model is. Maybe I should say spoiler alert before asking this question, because you, you close the book by going back to Keynes um, and his you know, favourite quote, famous quote about the importance of ideas. Indeed, the, the world is ruled by little else. And you say, actually, he's wrong. Um, ideas aren't the most important thing, uh, far from it, um, that actually it, it's power and politics and, and coalitions that, that matter and that determine the direction things take. Uh, I'm interested in that broadly, but there's a sort of specific application of that thinking that you refer to a few times. Um, and it's something that I just hadn't really thought about too much, but you know, actually it, it, it's quite striking, um, is the rise of mass home ownership mm. and its impact on politics. And your, I suppose your, your thesis there, slightly provocative, is that mass home ownership is driving bad economic decision-making. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so like starting with the Keynes, you know, as you say, I, you know, I give him the gold medal for most influential economist, and then at the end, there's a little stab in the back there. Fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, there's the Keynes quote about ideas mattering more than vested interests, mm -hmm. and I think as a sort of prominent public intellectual, I understand why it would be reassuring to think that, but I think he was also fundamentally wrong. Ideas are important, but ideas don't matter unless you can assemble the right coalition to you know, put them into practice. Um, the home ownership, so yeah, you know, I, I think of a lot of sort of British economic development, a lot of British political development, a lot of British political economy is the interplay of, you know, a first landed interests versus this new industrial middle class and then the rise of the industrial working class, all of these different interplays. But yeah, I mean, I think provocative maybe, but I think the dominant thing, the dominant force in our politics for the last 15 or so years has been almost a post-economic interest group. People in the, people either who are retired or are nearing retirement who tend to have a relatively generous, in many cases, defined benefit pension, I've been paid or due to them, tend to own their own house. And there are lots of them because of demographics and they tend to vote, so their electoral importance is magnified. But what's interesting about them is they're almost post-economic because their incomes are secure, their housing is secure, and so we're just not used to that. You know, we're used to this interplay of different economic interest groups wanting something different from the economy. And then suddenly we've got this big voting block who, I mean, they're against many of the things economists say should make growth drive, drive growth, whether it's universities or immigration or single market membership. Um, building more houses. Building more houses. I mean, it's, it's quite hard. How, how does your political system cope mm. with a large interest group appear to be against growth not explicitly but mm. in what they actually do and would you say then that affluent aging societies just tend inevitably towards sclerosis does it does it then take an Atlee or a thatcher 
um, one of these people who does sort of cause a fork in the road to change the direction. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's worth saying, you know, demographics aren't destiny. They're important. But, you know, you, you couldn't just look at a sort of demographic projections and say what's going to happen to an economy. Um, what I think is interesting about those two, that, that Attlee and that Thatcher, is that they're both hugely consequential politicians reshape the economy. They're both enormously effective politicians, but they're both also sort of historically contingent. You know, Attlee took power in 1945 at the end of the Second World War after the 30s and 20s. If he had taken power at another time, could he have achieved what he achieved? Probably not. Margaret Thatcher takes power in 1979 after the 1970s. You know, Ted Heath comes to power in 1970 with an agenda that sounds quite Thatcherite, mm -hmm. but nobody calls themselves a Heathite now. He couldn't achieve it. <laughs> it's fat, you know. So I think it's not just about having the right politicians, mm. it's about having politicians in the right historical moment. Was Brexit potentially such a historical moment? I think Brexit's huge. I think Brexit is... Um, I try not to bang on about Brexit because you know, I'm really quite bored of it. But, um, <laughs> but I think Brexit is a really... It's a big moment. I mean, you know, we've never had an example of, a, of, of an advanced economy decoupling itself from a single market as deep as Europe. And you know, I mean, this is the thing. You know, even if the pandemic hadn't happened in 2020. Mm -hmm. 2020 would have been a consequential moment for Britain in the long run because it's forging out its own future. And then obviously for the last 18 months, it's all been buried under pandemic and pandemic recovery. But you know, we shouldn't underplay the 2020s are going to be a really important decade for Britain, setting the path for decades to come. And you say um, in the book that uh, COVID could be a larger political economy event than uh, than the First World War. Mm. And obviously that that's, must be a mm. calculation that you're kind of having to update mm. all the time in that kind of Philip Tetlock forecasting yeah. way. Uh, what What's your view now looking at us? We, we're clearly not out of COVID, but life seems a bit more normal now. And then as soon as we, as soon as we got to that stage, we suddenly hit massive labour shortage, yeah. can't even get lorries to supermarkets yeah. on time. I mean, what's, your, what's your overall assessment of, of where we are now in terms of the economic impact? Yeah, I mean, it, it was quite annoying writing a book on British economic history to then be hit by the biggest recession <laughs> in a century. To, as I was, okay, it's going to be a longer epilogue, lads. Stick it in the epilogue. Yeah, longer epilogue than we expected. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really big moment. It's a big moment to the extent that debt to GDP has jumped back to 100%. And we need to work out what we think about that. Do we want to get it back to 80? Are we comfortable keeping it 100? Do we mind if it rises a bit more? So that's a big question. Um, but I think more than that, you know, the recession we had last year was unusual on so many levels. I mean, it was the sharpest, deepest recession we've had, the most unusual recession we've had. You know, recessions aren't usually caused by the government telling people, stay at home, close your businesses. It was very unusual. But particularly striking was, you know, how much of the costs of that recession were borne by the government. So we didn't see unemployment spike. We didn't see incomes collapse. What we saw was government debt to GDP rise. We saw the furlough scheme, which is a radical break in British economic history. And I think that takes you to an interesting question. So what happens the next time there's a normal recession? You know, normal in inverted commas. In 2025, there's another euro crisis or there's a recession in China or whatever. And we hit a, we hit a recession. The pressure on the Treasury to do something furlough-like is going to be huge because they've now proved they have a tool they can use to contain a rise in unemployment. Now, they're going to say, because it's the Treasury, that was very special circumstances. It was normally expensive. We're not doing it again. But 
putting Pandora back in the box is quite hard, I think. Do you think that actually we may end up getting this, um, this period a little bit wrong in terms of the political economy? Because this government had already decided before the pandemic that it was going to throw off the shackles a bit in terms of macroeconomic policy. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the, you know, when, I was, when I was originally writing the book, I was going to end in June 2016. I thought, there, the Brexit referendum, there's a nice bookmark. Uh, yeah, I, I can ignore Theresa May and Boris Johnson. It's fine, I've got a bookmark. And then the 2019 election happened. I thought, fine, fine, we'll go to 2019. 2019's a nice bookmark. And then the pandemic happened and the epilogue ended up getting bigger. But I think the 2019 election is a really interesting one. You know, Conservative majority again, but on a very different basis to David Cameron's 2015 majority. And I think, you know, actually, you know, you think this through with your sort of political economist and your e- economics hat on. Your economics hat, you look at Britain, you say London and the wider southeast is has been growing faster than the rest of the UK for a number of years, decades even. There are fundamental reasons for that in terms of it's an attractive place to live, it's got the right industries, whatever. You know, your sort of smaller economist hat, that's going to continue. Your political economist hat is to say, is it sustainable to have one part of the country doing much better than the rest forever, or is that going to cause backlash? Um, Johnson government seems to be coming in as, you know, you know, we get the whole levelling up agenda, all of this. Um, I think it's going to be one of the big themes of the next few years. And I think the interesting political economy theme of the next few years is we've had basically two years, almost, of the government talking about a you know, so-called red wall, like four dozen MPs. And I do wonder for how long the other 330-odd or whatever Tory MPs are going to be happy with an agenda which is... These 50 guys are the important things. We're lavishing praise on them. Um, I think that's going to that's be the really interesting tension over the next two or three years. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an attack in mind as well, because there's, I think, about 40-odd Labour seats that they've only got a majority, yeah. sort of 3,000 or under. The next yeah. wall, the next bricks in the red wall, um, you know, ready to fall. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, whether you've got a view on this, what economic history tells us about what comes next or what should come next. Perhaps because you know, on the one hand, um, there are a lot of people on the right who worry about spending getting out of control, um, debt becoming too burdensome, inflation spiking, mm-hmm. and the kind of spiral of low growth and, and high inflation that we saw in, in the 70s and that mm-hmm. Thatcher came in to deal with. Um, at the same time, a lot of people worry, and I can see this concern as well, that we may repeat the, the problems of the 1920s, um, that we you know go too hard the opposite direction operate in too contractionary a way um, and then we don't bounce back the way that you would expect to um you know how do you see this question i mean i i you know sort of you know putting on my economist britain economics correspondent hat rather than my um economic historian hat i think you know actually the sort of the macro outlook for the british economy at the moment is actually quite easy to understand in that we just had a we had a very deep recession it was a very unusual recession but it you know, hit demand and it hit supply. What we've seen in, at the moment is demand has recovered a lot quicker than supply has because, you know, the restrictions are mainly gone. I can go to the pub when I couldn't go to the pub. I can spend money, all of that. But there are supply-side issues. And so because demand has recovered quicker than supply, what you'd expect is inflation to rise for the next 12 to 18 months. Now, where does that leave you? It leaves you two options. Either you accept higher inflation and disruption for the next 12 to 18 months, or you try and clamp down on demand. Now, I, 
my view is this is almost certainly a transitory rise in inflation. The Bank of England, the Treasury should look through it, should not be clamping down too hard too quickly, particularly given you know Delta variant and all of this sort of stuff. But you know, I do understand. I do understand the objection from the other side that you know every rise in inflation has been described as transitory <laughs> originally. It is until it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the sort of extraordinary things. I think one of the things we like to sort of it's very difficult to say this now during the COVID times, but generally on capex is to kind of point out what a kind of gilded age we live in. I mean, are you still overall looking at Britain in the world? And, you know, especially when you look back 200 mm. years ago, and you think we're pretty lucky to be in this world and not that one. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, um, I, the more you read about economic history, particularly over the longer run, the more happy I was to be born when I was. I mean, you know, my life has been immeasurably better than it would have been um, at most other points in history. And yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the thing is, right, it's very easy to talk up the problems with the British economy. And the British economy has real problems. It's got productivity problems. It's got problems with low-wage work. It's got, you know, all sorts of problems. It's got big regional imbalances. It's got all of these problems. But it's still also, at the same time, an enormously successful economy in the global scheme of things. And I think sometimes we forget that when we, you know, talk about the problems. Mm. Do you have another one? I think that's a, a lovely note to end things on. Um, Duncan, thank you very much indeed. Um, Duncan's book, 200 Years of Muddling Through, is out this very week. I think, is it Thursday? Thursday. 26th mm -hmm. of August. Um, this podcast going out on the Friday, so do rush to the bookshops where it should be available. Thanks very much. Thank you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.